show a clip in the beginning and a clip at the end. It's a little, it's a little, it's a little intense. It's a little squeamish. So if if uh, that type of thing bothers you, just just look down or shut your eyes, and it's just about three minutes long, and it's going to lead us up into the hours on the cross. So if you're with me, say amen. amen. And if you are completely wigged out about it, just step out for just a minute, and you can step back in. In John 19. In verse uh, number 16, it says, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for your anointing in this lesson. Lord, you have spoke to my heart in such an incredible way. And I pray that I can deliver to your people in the way you've delivered it to me. God will thank you and praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say it. Amen.
Jesus is scourged by the Roman soldiers to take away his strength, to take away his vitality, to bring him to the point closest to death without actually uh, executing him. He's carried his cross. Simon, the serene, has been commissioned to help him and carry the cross to Calvary. They get to Golgotha, uh, which means the place of a skull. We showed you that last week. Uh, and there the Bible says they crucify him. Not great detail has gone into in the Gospels, in any of the Gospels. It just says there they crucify him. And the reason that is is because up until this point, uh, there has been about 30,000 men already crucified in Israel. The Romans were very, uh, it, it was their primary source of execution. The Persians invented it, but the Romans perfected it. The Romans did it in a way that would cause the most excruciating pain to cause the most amount of shame. They would always do it in a very visible place, a place where passerbyers would come to try to make sure nobody else would cause or commit the crime that the person on the cross had committed. And so they did it for shame. They did it for the extreme amount of pain. They nailed him to a cross and this is here, and as we go through the study tonight, I want to take you through the timeline on the cross. I want to take you through and let you see that there's a whole lot more that takes place on the cross than meets the eye. Sometimes we just see the vision of him nailed to a cross, and we see uh, him dying on the cross, and we see him taken from the cross and put in the tomb. But there's so much that took place in six hours. This is 9 o'clock in the morning. Nine o'clock in the morning, they have nailed Jesus. Now, 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 keep in mind, he hasn't had anything to eat from since the day before. He hasn't had anything to drink from the day before. He hasn't had any sleep from the day before. He was arrested the night before, and throughout all this time, he's endured a false trial, a mock trial. Uh, 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 he's been falsely accused. He's been found guilty and condemned to die. And now here he is crucified after the scourging, after the mocking. They beat him with their fists. They beat him with a rod. They placed a crown of thorns upon his head. They spit in his face. They plucked his beard out. And now we're at Calvary. The first thing that takes place at Calvary is he is offered a drink. He is offered a, a it says, vinegar mixed with gall. Mark says it and identifies the gall as myrrh. And it is a type of a narcotic. 
Here he's offered this drink, and it is customary to give the prisoners this drink to dull their senses. To, it, it is in a way to cause them to not feel the pain and not to resist the Roman soldiers. And some, some uh, uh, traditions say that the wealthy women of, of, of the Jewish people would offer this drink as, as a sort of mercy to the people being crucified. But the Bible says that when Jesus was offered this narcotic, when he was offered this mind-numbing drink, this would, they would have rendered uh, his faculties not the way they should be. He, he declined. He refused. He would not drink it. He would endure everything to the fullest extent. Not only that, but he still had ministry to do. So, after he, he is... Uh, offered the narcotic drink and refuses, then we find that we have a crowd of people that are here. And this crowd of people is, is really basically four different groups of people. We find the passerbys. Now remember, this is the time. This is the time of the, uh, 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 the, the ceremony, the celebration. This is the Passover meal. Uh, this is a holiday and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people here that have come together in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. There's no question about it. Jerusalem could not hold all of the people, so they would stay in, 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 in rival communities and outside of the city walls, and they would come in and out as they were taking part of the Passover. And so the cross is situated in a place that is by a common run road. In other words, there are crowds of people that are coming in and coming out of Jerusalem. And the Bible says that during this period of time, during this period of time, he is abused and he's mocked. Matthew 27, 39, and they that passed by, they reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise unto them, the chief priests mocking him, and the scribes and the elders. They said, he saved others. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will, we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him, uh, for he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, the thieves also were crucified with him, and they cast the same in his teeth. Luke 15, or Luke 23, 35. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering vinegar, saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. This vinegar was a is basically a sour wine that was diluted with water that they would use, the soldiers would use, and laborers would use as a drink. So, so you have the common people mocking Jesus. The people coming in and out of Jerusalem are mocking Jesus. Maybe these are people that saw him on the, on the shores of Galilee. Maybe, maybe these are people who saw him preach a sermon in, in Peter's boat. Maybe, maybe it's people that saw him on the side of the hill as he preached uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe it's people that actually ate bread, that, that walked away. Maybe it's people that witnessed miracles. Even the high priest, even the high priest admitted. They admitted and confessed with their own mouth. He saved others. You see, they could not refute his miracles. They could not deny his miracles. They knew what he did. And in their own mouth, they condemned their own selves. 
He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He saved others, but let's see if God will save him. If he's the son of God, let's see if God will rescue him. Just the common people passing by. The high priests and the elders mocking. They make fun of him. They cry out to him. Not, not enough, not enough to demand his death. Not enough to demand his execution. They want to get all, all of the joy out of mocking him. The soldiers mock him, but they're ignorant. They're just doing what they do. They're, they're, they're most likely, most likely these soldiers from, was from Caesarea. They were from the, the fortress on the ocean, on the, on the beach, and, and they're, just here for the, they're just here for the holiday. They're here to make sure there's no uprising in Israel. So they're really not familiar with Judaism. They're not familiar uh, with Jesus. They're, they're probably, all they know is they have been commanded and it's their responsibility to execute this criminal. And the thieves, thieves, plural, both of them, we know he was crucified with two thieves. They both mocked him. Get us down too. Take us from this cross too. Then we read that the soldiers begin to gamble over his garments. You see, the soldiers, as they would execute somebody, they would send four. A four. Four soldiers. And and these four soldiers would be responsible for the execution of the prisoner. These four soldiers would be responsible for staying with the prisoner because sometimes, sometimes the prisoner, it took hours and hours, sometimes even days for the prisoner to die on the cross. And so it was these four soldiers' responsibility not only to implement the execution, not only to nail them to the cross and, and post them for everyone to see, they had to remain with the victim till he died. So that no family member, so no friend could come and, and rescue them off the cross. So, so nobody could come and, and kill them early and get them out of their misery. No, no, we can't have, we have to stay. Part of the benefit, part of the, 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 the payment, I guess if you will, for being part of the execution, the soldiers got to, to take whatever belonged to the victim. So it was the spoils, if you will, all of Christ's garments. Now, the people of that day basically had five pieces in their garments. The outer coat, which was the tunic, the inner coat, the belt, the headpiece, and the shoes. We have five pieces of clothing, but we have four soldiers. That leaves, that leaves one. Well, instead of tearing that woven garment that was specially made probably from one of Jesus' followers for him as a gift. Instead of tearing it, let's just, let's just gamble for it. Hey, let's just let's, let's cast lots so that we don't, we don't, let's don't tear it into four pieces. Let's just see who gets it all. And as Jesus is dying on the cross, they're gambling over his garment, which we know is just a fulfillment of Scripture. And so here... We have people passing by mocking him. We have the crowd of the high priest that's just, just amping up the crowd, mocking Jesus. We have the soldiers mocking Jesus and gambling over his garments. We have the thieves who are mocking him also. We have 
Psalm 22. Psalm 22 gives us an Old Testament prophetic view of Calvary. The psalmist in the Old Testament. And by the way, the psalmist had never seen a crucifixion because it was not in existence yet. But here's what he he begins to write prophetically concerning. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, verse 2. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not in the night season, and I am not silent. Verse 6. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. All that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help, verse 12. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round, verse 13. They gapped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust, for dogs have compassed me. Dogs was a word that was used for Gentiles. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be thou not far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. We find Jesus being mocked, Jesus in pain and agony, Jesus suffering. And the crowd he's surrounded by is a hostile crowd who care nothing for him. They care nothing for who he was or where he came from. And in the midst of the hostility, in the midst of the mockery, in the midst of the blasphemy, in the midst of all the ridicule, we hear the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the midst of the crucifixion, Jesus is offering forgiveness for those who are crucifying, those who are belittling Him, those who are mocking Him, those, are y'all with me? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is offering a word of forgiveness. And oh, we find something takes place. Something takes place. One thief continues the mockery. In Luke 23, verse 39, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The thief 
falls under conviction. The thief realizes his condition. He says and he admits and he acknowledges, we deserve this. We deserve what we're getting. If you never acknowledge your sin, you'll never come to salvation. We deserve what we're getting. Don't you realize that this man has done nothing now? He's acknowledging Christ. Now he's acknowledging not just that he is innocent, but that he is king. When you enter into your kingdom, remember me. What is he doing? He's responding to the word of Christ. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by. Woo, say amen. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of Christ unto salvation. The word, he heard a word. He put his confidence in the word of Christ, a word of repentance. He heard Christ say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he believed and trusted in that word and believed if God will forgive them, maybe he'll forgive me. Jesus answered his request. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. No work of of salvation. There is no work to be done. Somebody say amen. Listen, today, today, what grace, what mercy. Let me give you another thing. Just throw this in. What changed the heart of a wicked, vile, murdering thief when he saw the spirit of forgiveness? You may not ever completely understand the power of your own forgiveness in the heart of someone else. But when he saw Jesus forgive, it completely changed his heart. Church, say amen. We're getting close to noon. Jesus has been hanging on the cross for a couple hours now. Listen, his his body emaciated and racked with pain. He looks down. He looks down and he sees, he sees an audience and in that audience he sees his mama and his mama standing by his best friend, John and Mary. Now, now keep in mind Jesus is dying. Jesus has has been brutalized. Jesus is in agony. Jesus is in pain. But yet he's still ministering. He sees his mother. And he looks at John. He said, John, there's your mama. Mama, there's your son. What's he doing? He is making sure that his widowed mother, it's pretty obvious during this situation, we realize that Joseph has probably died. 
His mother's a widow. He has cared for his mother. Now he's going to leave and he's not going to be able to be there to care for his mother. So he is entrusting, entrusting the care. How much do you love somebody to trust your mama with them? He's entrusting his mother to John. Now keep in mind, keep in mind, Jesus has got brothers. Mary and Joseph had had other children. But you see, he could not entrust them. He could not entrust them to his half-brothers because, you see, they weren't believers yet. They had thought Jesus had lost his mind. They didn't think, they didn't think that Jesus was truly who Jesus said he was. They didn't become believers till after the resurrection. And then the Bible says from that time on, from that point on, John took Mary to his house and cared for her. The whole time, Jesus is on the cross in the hours from 9 o'clock in the morning leading up into noon, we find Jesus still ministering. Jesus still being the priest, still caring as the shepherd for his sheep. Somebody say amen. amen. Then we find ourselves. This is where it begins to get intense. When the sun is in its apex, when it's its the highest in the sky, at noon, at noon, when it's the brightest and it's the highest, according to Scripture, darkness covered the land. A darkness that could be felt. A darkness that was supernatural. This wasn't some eclipse. This wasn't some phenomenon. There was a meaning behind it. Some well-meaning scholars have written that, that God wanted to cover His Son because many believed that Jesus was hanging naked on a cross because the Romans would crucify their victims naked to, to magnify the humiliation, to magnify. And, and, and God the Father was covering His Son as an act of mercy, but that's not what it was. You see, all of a sudden, at noon, God showed up. God showed up. Say, where do you get that? There are many places. There are many places that God's presence is identified with darkness. And just stay with me. Stay with me because this is going to make sense. It says in Matthew 27, 42, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That was until three. So from 12 to three there was utter darkness. We see that God's presence is associated with darkness. When God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 15, 12, it says a terror and a great darkness came upon him. In Exodus 20, verse 18, it says, And all the people, this is at Mount Sinai, when God, Moses had brought the people to Mount Sinai, it says all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, because they were afraid of what they were seeing. 
Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, that His fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off. But watch this, watch this. Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. His presence, his presence is associated with a thick darkness. Joel 2, verses 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. Not only is God's presence associated with darkness, but judgment is associated with darkness. Amos 5.10 says, Shall not the day be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it. Verse 20. Amos 7.11 And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Zephaniah 1.14 The great day of the Lord is near, it is near, and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, that mighty man, shall cry very bitterly. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, a day of distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of dark clouds and thick darkness. God's presence is associated with darkness. God's judgment is associated with darkness. Eternal hell is associated with darkness. Matthew 8.10 But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away. Cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 18. Cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Preacher, what has taken place? At 12 noon, Jesus hanging on the cross, God has arrived. And he's brought hell with him. God has arrived to bring punishment and judgment and justice upon his son. In this moment of time, in mankind's greatest hour of sin and greatest hour of wickedness, we find God's greatest gift of grace. He comes Because at this moment, Jesus has taken upon him every sin of the world, every sin of mankind, every rape, every murder, every lie, every deceitful act, every single sin that mankind would ever sin from Adam all the way to the last human was placed upon Christ on Calvary. And in three hours of darkness, you got to understand this. Stay with me, stay with me. In three hours of darkness... Jesus has become sin. And Jesus is enduring the punishment, the judgment, the full fury of God against sin. He had to take all of it so we didn't have to. And because Christ, I hope you can understand this, I hope this doesn't confuse you. I hope this doesn't confuse you because we have an infinite God God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. 
God is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. All we know is time. All we know is past, present, and future. We can't go to our past and we can't go to our future. We can only live in our present. But we have a God who is unlimited. He is boundless. He is infinite. He is in our past right now. He is in our present right now. He is in our future right now. He knows exactly what's going to happen three months from now because He's there. And because Christ is an infinite being, He endured the eternal punishment of hell for every human being. In other words, He felt He realized he suffered what every sinner who dies in their sin will suffer when they spend an eternity separated from God in hell. God brought hell with him and put Jesus through it. And in three hours on the cross, an infinite being Christ endured the eternal punishment of hell for every man. Three hours. Three hours he suffered. Now think about this. Let's think about how this is described. Complete darkness. Separation from the Father. Because we know in just a moment, I'm going to get to that. He cries, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Utter darkness. Separation from God. He cries out, I thirst. We know by reading of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus was in hell and he lift up his, excuse me, the rich man died and in hell he lift up his eyes seeing Lazarus being comforted in Abraham's bosom. And he said, oh, Abraham, will you send Lazarus to make dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my parching tongue for I am tormented in this flame." We see utter darkness, we see separation, and we see thirst. I thirst. Jesus is experiencing hell for every man. Jesus is enduring the full fury, the full judgment, the full punishment, the full hell for every man. At the end... About three o'clock, about three o'clock, Jesus cries. Jesus cries. Matthew, Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? This is the only time. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus refers to God as God and not His Father. Every other reference, He would say, Father, Father. But now He cries, My God, my God. Why is this so? If you'll study the Gospels, you'll find out that there was a time in the beginning of Jesus' ministry that He fasted in the wilderness. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? 
He fasted 40 days in the wilderness and he endured great temptation. And he endured a great trial from Satan. Satan came against him and attacked him and attacked him and attacked him and tempted him. And and in the wilderness, the Bible records that God would send angels to minister to him in the wilderness. Then we find Jesus in a garden when he's praying and he's under such stress and he's under under such emotional turmoil and, and such emotional strain that his sweat becomes as great drops of blood. And he's praying and he's praying and he's saying, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. He's seeing the cup of fury. He's seeing the cup of sin. He's seeing the cup of punishment that's going to be poured out on him on the cross. He's going to become sin for man. And the Bible says in his, in his stress and in his time of need in the garden, the Bible says that God sent angels to minister to him in the garden. In his weakness of humanity in the wilderness, God sent angels to minister to him. In his weakness of humanity in the garden, God sent angels to minister to him. But on the cross, on the cross, God couldn't comfort him. God couldn't send any relief. God couldn't show any mercy. God couldn't take any of it away. Why? A sinner who dies in their sin. A sinner who dies in their sin. You got to understand, it's not that the presence of God was not there. The presence of God was there in His wrath and fury. And every sinner... Every sinner will experience the presence of God in eternity in the wrath. The Bible says in John that the wrath of God abides upon him. But he's going to say, sorry, I never knew you. Depart from me. What happened when Abraham... What happened when Lazarus and Abraham was there and the rich man said, Send Lazarus and may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. He said, We can't. We can't. In eternal punishment, in eternal hell, there'll be no relief. There'll be no exit. There'll be no second chances. There'll be no mercy. There'll be no angels coming ministering to you. It will be eternal hell and eternal punishment and eternal suffering and eternal separation from the the fellowship of God and from the love of God, from the care of God. Jesus had already experienced some portion of this separation when he was incarnated in the human body. He was no longer in the face-to-face fellowship with his father. So he, he, he had already experienced some form of separation from his heavenly father that he had experienced for eternity past in the presence of his father. But now in this moment, he was completely separated from fellowship. There was no longer fellowship between father and son. There was no longer a, a, a relationship between father and son as far as care and mercy and care because Jesus had to take it 
all. He took upon the punishment of every man. And he cries, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Because he could not send an angel. Because there's no mercy in everlasting torment. Jesus knowing, John 19, 28, about 3 o'clock, about 3 o'clock, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he saith, I thirst. Now there was set full of, a vessel full of vinegar, remember, it's not like vinegar that you put on your greens. It's, it's, it's that sour wine. It's diluted with water. It filled a sponge and they took it to Jesus. And it says in John 19, 24, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Some of the first words. Some of the first words recorded of our Savior. He was 12 years old in the temple. And he was answering questions and he was asking questions. He was confounding the wise and the elders. And his parents came to him and said, what are you doing? You scared us to death. What are you doing? And the first words that we have recorded of our Savior, of the Lord Jesus Christ, is, wish you not that I must be about my Father's business. There's work to do. I've got a calling. I've got a commission. I've got a destiny. Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world was said by John. Jesus said, I didn't come to be ministered to I came to be a minister. I came to give my life a ransom for many. He tells them, for this cause came I into this world. For this reason was I born. Now he cries. He's taken the punishment. He's endured the suffering. An infinite Christ has endured the eternal suffering of mankind in the, in the amount of three hours. And he says it is finished. What does it is finished mean? It means the work of redemption given to him by the Father was completed. It means sin was atoned for. 
It means Satan was defeated and rendered powerless. It means every requirement of the law had been satisfied. It means that God's holy wrath against sin had been appeased. It means every prophecy had been fulfilled. It means that nothing needs to be done and nothing can be added to it. It is finished. It's done. You can't do enough because there's nothing to do. If you're going to get into heaven, you're going to trust in what he did on Calvary. Or you're not getting in. I love this part. To me, this is the greatest part. And most people totally miss it. And sometimes the vision that you see from Hollywood, it kind of it is not accurate. I've been, I've been to the deathbed of tons of people. I've been in hospital rooms when they've drawn their last breath. I've been beside many that were on this door. And most of the time, when they're at the brink of death and when they're at the brink of crossing over, they try to speak, but they really have no strength to speak. They try to voice their mind, they try to voice their words, but they're so weak and they're so emaciated and they're they're so pitiful that they try to move their lips to say, but you can't hear them. Because they're so weak, they can't get it out. But the Bible says, <laughs> Luke 23, 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, When Jesus had cried with a loud voice. When Jesus had cried with a loud voice. Father into thy hands. I commend my spirit. I know what you're thinking. Big deal. Let me tell you what the big deal is. Jesus was letting the world know there's still life in me. Jesus is letting the world know that I am still alive, I am still breathing, I still have vitality, I still have strength. The Jews didn't kill me. The Romans didn't kill me. The cross didn't kill me. The nails didn't kill me. The whip didn't kill me. Nothing has taken my life. I am laying it down voluntarily. I am giving it up and one day I'll take it back up again. With a loud voice. You know what that tells me? 
that tells me throughout this whole ordeal, throughout this whole situation, throughout his whole life, throughout the birth in the beginning of his life, through every step of the three years of his ministry, every time Satan tried to come against him, every time the scribes came against him, every situation that happened in his life, even the mock trial, even the beating, even the scourging, even the crucifixion, he was still in charge. And he said, I commend my spirit. I. You remember in the trial, Pilate said, I, don't you understand? I have power to take your life. Jesus said, you have no power over me. He said, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. And in the moment on the cross, he's letting the world know, I voluntarily as a shepherd, lay my life down for my sheep. And he gave up the ghost.
Next week, we'll find out what happens next. There's a great earthquake. A great earthquake. Something significant takes place in the temple. Something significant takes place in the graveyards. Something significant takes place on the hill. Don't miss it. It's going to be good. And all of God's people say it. Can we, can we do this? Can we just stand to our feet as reverently as we know how? I just feel a little spirit of holiness in here. And just take a moment to thank him. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have our communion. And, and we're going to remember this. And that's what communion is all about. <clears throat> but I want to ask you if this, if this song has a new meaning. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Caring not my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there, it was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at By God's word, at last my sin I'd learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. Till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Now I've given Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of. Oh, the love. That drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. At Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Calvary. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you for the free pardon of sin. I'm so glad I can't add anything to it. There's nothing needed.